This is your host, Tim Powell, from the Oil & Gas Council. Today we are joined by Preston Page, Managing Member of Everest Energy, a private minerals and royalties aggregator that is focused on the Rockies. During the episode, Preston talks about his team's data-driven approach and how their longer-term view on development has enabled them to focus on acquiring undeveloped minerals in Tier 2 areas at a great cost basis. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Preston has to say. Preston, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Tim, for having me. No, absolutely. So as, as we do on these episodes, we, we always like to start out with a personal background. So if you can let everyone know a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, and then how you found yourself in the oil and gas industry and, and ultimately the mineral space. Yeah, Tim. Well, like I said, I'm, I'm from Botnell, North Dakota, so it's right up on the Canadian border. So I'm right now actually out on a, out on a well site and I'm looking across the border at, at Canada. So I grew up here. And then went to school at University of North Dakota for business, graduated undergrad and couldn't get a job. So went to grad school. And then in that time, I found the oil and gas sector and was introduced to somebody, uh, Lauren Copsing, actually out of Missouri River Royalty. I was introduced to him or, and he kind of got me placed in the land business. So I started out with Sundance Oil and Gas at Tom, with Tom O'Brien and started running title in the courthouse and moved into the oil and gas leasing sector. So we worked in Divide County predominantly at that time. So that's kind of how we got started. And what, just for reference, what's the time frame on you kind of getting in on the land side, just so we can match it up with industry cycles and commodity price cycle? Yeah, absolutely. So I started for Sundance in the spring of 2011. So I was fresh out of college and looking for a job. So that was the first place I started. I, I originally was looking to get into the service sector, but luckily we got pushed in the direction of the land business. And you know, would you categorize yourself as more of an entrepreneur? You've done a handful of things and have a number of different companies you run right now. Can you give a little insight on that? And are some of them outside of the industry or are they all in oil and gas? Well, in college, I went to school. So I actually went to school. My undergrad was in entrepreneurship. So I come from an entrepreneurial family and, and we've always been around you know, a lot of startup businesses and that type of environment. So it's something I strongly resonate to. And I've started a few companies myself and some successful, some not. You know, we, we did have a, a run in. We tried to get in the service side for drilling and invented a machine for mixing up drilling waste. Ultimately was unsuccessful and learned a substantial amount from, from those failures and you know, understanding that business model and how the, the service side works was extremely valuable, but ultimately we just, we died of exhaustion. And that is a, being in the backyard of a drilling rig is a tough place to make a, have a long-term impact. So, so yeah, to answer your question, they've been involved in a lot of different entrepreneurial ventures. And, you know, currently right now we we're in non-operating working interests. We're directly involved in the operations of a package of wells we bought from Crescent Point, and then royalties is kind of our main focus at this point. You know, we've watched the Bakken kind of evolve, and, and the non-op is where we started, you know, and just realized that for our strategies or my strategies of trying to build, we just simply didn't have enough capital to, you know, make a, a large enough MPV where it was worthwhile. I mean, it was, that was a steep learning curve getting into not doing a lot of non-ops. So. Yeah, no, I mean, that's one of the benefits on, on the mineral side, right, is you, you don't get AFE to death. But, you know, there are some, some advocates out there that love the non-op minerals blended strategy because of 
kind of the insight you can get on development and data. Have you told that over the years to buy tiny, tiny interest in wells to get insight and to help kind of pave the way for a strategy? I, I know in, in conversations we've had offline, you said that data and analysis is a big part of what you guys do and you drive that through another arm of, of your company, Dakota Energy Advisors, that does kind of the land brokerage side. Yeah. So, I mean, it, kind of stepping back on the data side of it, and I'll tell you a short story on how, what happened. So I, it was November of 2011. I picked up a two acre lease in Divide County. Continental Resources had an ASD, thought this is going to be good. I'm going to participate. I've heard everyone talk about this, kind of that group think mentality. And this is great. I was out, you know, I'd go out to the rig every, you know, every few days. I mean, I was out there, I knew the company man would bring him hot stuff pizza. He'd show me around. It was a fantastic experience. I'd literally, I had one sixth of 1% working interest and I thought I was Harold Ham. Come to find out when those trucks are leaving that location, those narrower tube trucks or tanks, that's water. And that well, I had $14,002 I invested into that well, has not cumed 80,000 barrels in nine years. Needless to say, we took a steep write down on it and just had to really step back and think hard about what we were doing and why we were or how we were trying to build our balance sheet. So we really focused on data from that point forward. Just said, we're not doing this kind of following the herd mentality. And luckily, Tom O'Brien really strongly preached that as well early on in my career when I was fortunate enough to work for Tom. And you know, we stepped back. So I started out building out type curves. I trained myself in a lot of data, you know, PhD WAN, Petra, Spotfire, et cetera, GeoEdges, things like that, and kind of building out a better idea of what the landscape looked like. So I have by hand forecast the oil production of every single well in the Williston Basin. So I, I understand the type curves quite well. In the Williston, we're well into the play at this point, probably a sixth inning play if you were to ask me. So we much better understand what the development looks like in, in the Williston Basin. And so kind of on that, so you have your head wrapped around the technical side. And by the way, real quick, so you have a, a pretty good technical understanding of, of what's going on. How does that formulate into your acquisition strategy going back to minerals? Uh, do you kind of focus core of the core? Do you focus on certain operators or do you have different parameters? What's your strategy? And, and you also buy with your own capital and you have a bit of a longer term holding period to that, right? So that kind of goes into the strategy as well. Can you touch upon that? Well, that's a really good question, Tim. And, and so part of our data for the benefit is that somebody could send us a, you know, an Excel spreadsheet of a thousand APIs and revenue interest. And by the end of the day, we would have a pretty good idea of what, what was there. We can go through a lot of data. So a lot of our transactions end up being more complex, generally on the smaller side and business to business would be a lot of our focus. And from that, we've ended up with more overriding royalty acres than we would of minerals. But our data background is extremely beneficial for us to rapidly understand the development, what direction they're going. So we also run an on-the-ground game as well. We have guys that are actively out you know, running title and as we're expanding out into the block. And I mean, tier three acreage, what was tier three acreage in 2015 in the Williston is now probably tier two plus. In every direction, the bucket has expanded. And so from our data, we've been trying to stay on the forefront of that. We'll step out into a tier two area long before a private equity backed up, you know, mineral buyer will. And so what's your longer term strategy there? Is it to hold on to it, take a little more risk and exit to the PE guy down the road? Or are you just happy to hold it and 
and cash flow it out and you just get a really good cost basis. What's the, the underlying driver there? It depends. You know, we do sell deals on occasion. We sell every month that something probably goes out the door in order to, you know, keep things moving forward. But ultimately, our goal isn't to own minerals. It's to build a balance sheet. Minerals is simply how we get there. And we try to constantly remind ourselves of that. That is something we see it a lot. Where as an entrepreneur, any entrepreneurial venture, you kind of start running with blinders on and you just start looking forward. So to answer your question, Likely someday we will probably sell, but our ultimate goal is to, you know, build our balance sheet. Yeah, it's all about operating cash flow, right? It's the name of the game, especially when it's your own money. We do bounce back and forth with, with our RBLs. You know, we do take out um, debt financing as as we build up a package of cash flow. We either, you know, we might divest that or, you know, look at taking out a reserve-based loan against it. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 972-788-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. You know, you don't hear many players doing debt financing. You know, back in the day when Royalty Clearinghouse got started, they used their own capital and bootstrapped it and, and had a bank line. I think that was more traditional in the early, early days of minerals when it wasn't really in vogue. Uh, now a lot of folks run, they raise their own funds. Now the interesting thing in a downturn like this, you don't have minerals companies in the same distressed type of situation as upstream companies and midstream and service companies because they don't really have any debt. But what has been your experience with using bank money and is there a requirement to turn it over? Or I guess, do you have different buckets when you're using debt? You have to have a line of sight to cash flow in the near term to, to service it, right? Or what's kind of been yep. the approach on it? We try to be awfully careful with debt. You know, the only people ask, how did you survive the 2014 downturn? And that was pretty simple. We didn't have any debt. So you know, we also didn't have a, hardly any assets either. I can remember going to the bank and trying to get a loan and they're like, you're going to spend as much on legal fees as we're going to give you. So it didn't, didn't work out, but we feel comfortable with manageable amounts of debt underlying with very solid cash flowing assets. And as long as we also keep, you know, a diverse portfolio, we feel comfortable with that. But on the flip side, we will sell off packages on occasion as well. So, but during this downturn, you know, I've spent a lot of time, you know, going through portfolios and coming up with some strategies for debt financing. And today at $40 oil, especially in the non-op world, I mean, it, that is very difficult. Yeah, I mean, some commercial banks play in the space. I think some of them struggle to wrap their heads around minerals. Have you guys used a local commercial bank in the area or more of a national one? Just out of curiosity, just from risk appetite. Because sometimes it, you see some commercial banks in Midland, for instance, it's very much relationship-based with families and there's a trust factor there versus yep. just generic returns and everything. We use a local or a regional bank based out of North Dakota, which is, there's only a few banks or really one that does oil and gas lending. And I think some character-based lending does probably come into play with that, you know, how comfortable they are with what you're doing and making sure that your underlying assets are 
solid. So it, they're not, banks aren't going to step out too far and, you know, over lend based on PDP values. At least today, we're not seeing that. And, and we think as far as minerals and development on a large macro scale, all indications are that capital is going to be more and more difficult to come by, which is going to mean you're going to have a lower rig count basically moving forward, or that's what we forecast. So we do think that capital will become more expensive moving forward. It will become obviously more scarce, and it will slow the pace of development. Where do you see the Bakken, though, fitting in comparison to other basins in terms of activity? Well, I mean, the Bakken, like I said, I mean, I think it's a six-inning play. We call the core Bakken, we classify that as 52 townships. And in that 52 townships, there is not a lot of white on the map. I mean, at 8 plus, 812 wells per 1280 spacing unit is pretty predominant. It's extremely, it's very uniform. And what we consider core is, you know, that 650, 700 MBO UR type curve area. And so that is going to get drilled out relatively quickly. At least that's what our numbers show. And, and so a lot of the more private equity backed mineral buyers, that's really where they're focused. I mean, they're going to focus in East Mackenzie County or, you know, South Williams along the river, areas like that. We too focus in those areas, but probably not the most core, core focused company. We're far more successful in tier two areas that have one well on them and probably not going to be developed till $60 oil. Our longer term outlook allows us to take those negative rate of return PDP buys and stomach that for the foreseeable future. What do you say to the pundits out there that say the last five years was a failed experiment in shale? It's not sustainable at the pricing we had. Money is going to go away. And tier two assets are just going to go into zombie mode. They're going to go into blowdown. And if you're not oh, in core of yeah. core, you're not going to win. What do you say to folks out there that echo that sentiment? No, and it's a perfectly legitimate sentiment to have. And to say we're not, I mean, we're in the core. We own a, a fair, a, a decent amount of acreage in the core. It just hasn't been our recent focus. Like I said, there's not a lot of sections left that aren't heavily drilled out in the core basin. So we think that you have to have some sense of faith. And I think maybe that perhaps that's why we're able to get deals done is because we do have faith that the Williston will continue to expand. We do have faith that the Williston will continue to see development in tier two areas. Uh, I think you could, you could highlight on our recent EUR bubble map, which we mail out, we highlight 20 wells that are step out wells to expand the core of the Williston. You go to Coda Resources in Divide County, you go to Kraken, basically any, anything they ever touch, Richland County, Montana, Williams. You could go to Lime Rock in South Dunn County, Rim Rock on the very eastern edge. Like the Bakken has expanded Liberty Resources in North Montreal. You know, the Bakken has greatly expanded its footprint. No, that's great. So, uh, have you ever looked at kind of line of sight partnerships? We've looked at it more so in the Uinta Basin. We looked at doing a, a JV like that. The complexity of it ended up just being a little bit cost prohibitive and you know, how long it was going to take. But we're of the size that a smaller, you know, we do a lot of smaller deals. We've done you know, some very large acquisitions. I think we were involved in the, the largest mineral sale and private mineral owner in North Dakota. But most of our deals are under a million dollars. You know, we're getting a call or getting sent to their well list. And that's the type of deals that we do. So I find it interesting. I'd love to revisit. You said you prefer, even though you have a ground game, you prefer the the business to business corporate transactions and you end up having a lot of overrides as a result. You said the complexity so, in those deals, they're scattered, right? They're multiple areas. 
and you know your in-house expertise and, and the data you've compiled enables you to kind of clean up that hair. And I'm sure you're happy to do that. And that's where you can realize some of your value. Can you go into that in a little more yep. detail though? Because I find that interesting. A, a lot of folks that are operating in the million dollars sub-level on the mineral side, they kind of go all in on the ground game and see that's where the value creation is. And the ones yep. that are looking to work with corporates, you see some of the private equity firms trying to do large carve-outs. But it seems like yep. you're, you're kind of taking the, the bits and the pieces and the crumbs and help cleaning up portfolios for EMPs. Can you walk through past deals you've done and just examples kind of as a case yeah. study? I think it's an interesting strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And so we still, like I said, we still do the ground game, but, but keep in mind the Watkins an old gal. I mean, it's been around a long time. Every owner out there has had 200 plus offers. And if they're still owning it today, they're likely going to own it tomorrow. So the business to business stuff, we end up there end up being smaller, but you know, we've ended up picked up CNX Resources, Hyperion. We bought some from Silverball Resources recently, Legacy Energy, Tamco, and just to name a few. But with things like that, like like the Retamco purchase, for example, it was across the UNF, Peons, DJ, Powder River, and Bakken, Pier Override. So there's not a lot of folks that could analyze all of those basins and or would look at something like that. So we liked that particular position. And also we knew that oil development of the Uinta Basin was heading eastward and going to end up crossing over the uh, the gas plate, their gas window. And that ultimately did take place and made the purchase. So, but complex deals like that are like Escalera Resources out of bankruptcy. And we got, it was part non-op in Wyoming in North Dakota, Montana and part minerals. So we bought the non-op or the non-op in royalties and ultimately, over the next year, slowly sold off the non-op to just stick on the royalties. So, you know, we ended up with just royalties from that particular that particular play. No, that's great. You know, on the override side, so you kind of see overrides in federal lands, and then you see override carve-outs from EMPs, primarily in Appalachia, you know, the Antero deal with Six Street Partners that was just announced. You have a couple of those big override packages that range resources carved out over the last few years. I don't really see too many override packages of scale being done in other basins. And the, the explanation that I've been given is that you have a higher NRI as an operator in Appalachia. And so you have a little bit more of a cushion to carve out over yep. there uh, to keep your margins in check. You're doing override deals in the Rockies region. Can you comment to that and the dynamics from NRI norms and the flexibility that operators have to, to do override carve out? Well, that overrides on, on that front. So the North Dakota got developed really quickly. I mean, it was just, it was wild when the land play came through. And royalties shot up very high. Guys were selling out packages, leasing at 15%, delivering at 80 keeping a 5% override. I mean, that just was happening time and time again. So on the operator front, the NRIs are, are probably on average 80 to 82%. You know, there might be a little bit better, plus or minus. But so there's probably not a lot for an operator to carve out and keep lowering that NRI. But on the business front or the peer-to-peer business transaction where we, the space we play in, it leaves a lot of guys or a lot of, lot of people and companies with, you know, meaningful amounts of overrides. And it just so happens with, with our skill sets, that's what we've ended up acquiring more of. So we think that overrides are, we value them very close to minerals. We do give a slight discount compared to owning the minerals, but not much. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard others in conversations I've had say that there is a bit of an arbitrage on overrides uh, in certain areas. Yeah, well, like I, 
we're probably, I mean, maybe 90 cents on the dollar. We'll discount it a little bit to owning the minerals, but some of the risks that we do, you know, we'll take into play too. We'll buy overrides that are not held by production. And so our values on that dramatically decrease to comparing to compared to something that's held. And so with our shop, when it's, well, our money, we don't have a board of directors or something. We can make those type of decisions and stomach that risk which differentiates us quite considerably from, say, PE-backed type company. So we'll go and, and hedge our bet on maybe there's a 3% override on, you know, 500-acre lease and waiting to see if that gets developed or not. We're, we're pr- quite comfortable with those bets as long as we weight them correctly. But one of the issues we do see with overrides, like, say, for example, in Wyoming, where we some leases is on units, and say a unit, there's federal exploratory units in Wyoming more predominantly, and unit contracting. One thing we didn't see, you know, three, four years ago when we bought some of these overrides is the unit, federal units aren't being held after their unit um, exploratory well, and they're not continuing to drill, so the unit is contracting. And from that, we will lose some of our overrides. So that there are, there is a little more risk to an override, obviously, than just owning the minerals. Mm-hmm. On the same front. The risk is it doesn't get developed. You could own the minerals and they don't get developed, or you could own an override that doesn't get developed and expires. Both of them are worthless. So yeah, but you're you know you're making a calculated risk, right? And so you're gonna swing and miss on some, and and others are are gonna hit, and you're getting in at a, a really good cost basis. So that's you know where you can make the margins, right? Yeah, absolutely. Very good. And uh, I guess um, you talked primarily in the beginning about the Bakken, but you mentioned the Uinta Basin. Can you just Give a little bit of a, an overview, you know, where you guys have been active of late. You, I think you do a little bit in the powder as well. And it would also be worthwhile to note kind of a post-COVID type world, how you've seen deal flow and, and where you guys have been focused and have you been able to get deals done in this environment? Just what does the mineral buying world look like for you guys in, in a COVID-19 era with the oil price war laid on top of it? Yeah, those are well two kind of good questions there. And so where we've been focused is we're probably back to the Williston predominantly. Our land team, our on-the-ground team is, is 100% focused on the Williston right now. We've been in the Uinta for a couple of years. And what brought us to the Uinta is we were trying to buy an operated position, or we were involved in buying an operated position up here in Bono County from Crescent Point, And they kept talking about their Uinta, Uinta Basin. So we ran a bunch of numbers and, and just found that in the Uinta Basin, they are drilling some of the largest 18-month oil cumes in the Rockies. I mean, those some of the wells that were drilled by Axia rival the best of the Bakken. You're talking 300,000 barrel 12-month cumes, extremely big oil production in a very finite window, probably two to three townships. So we've gone through that as much as we can. And at this point, we're probably done there. But so we're, we're back to back to our focus here in the Williston Basin. And as far as post-COVID, I can say for certain, I thought the phone would be ringing more. And I get a lot of calls from a lot of, a lot of people saying, where's the deal flow? Like, we just, we thought this was going to happen. It's slowly starting to start now. We've had a really busy June. We've probably done 15 deals in June. So it, it is starting to, the phone is starting to ring. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to Noble Royalties for sponsoring our Minerals and Royalties podcast. As a leader in the minerals and royalties space since 1997, Noble remains committed to creative solutions for others who may be rethinking their risk tolerance. In order to adjust to the current market cycle, Noble thinks it might be time to reset, rethink, and redeploy capital differently. If you're interested in exploring ways to work with Noble, then please give Chase Morris a call at 
788-588-5823 or email him at cmorris at nobleroyalties.com. Thanks. Now let's jump back into the episode. There's a lot of enthusiasm and excitement March, April for those who had money. If you were a minerals company and you had cash, it was potentially a once in a lifetime buying opportunity, right? There was going to be distressed mineral owners and you could provide liquidity option for them. That enthusiasm is tempered because of the bid-ask spread, and it has been very slow. But it is good to hear. I mean, 15 deals, even if they're tiny, good to hear you guys are, are becoming more active. That's good news. Yeah, I think that's probably, you know, looking at our spreadsheet, probably what we've done right in that 15 range, maybe in the last six weeks, but it's been busy for certain. So we, we've seen that bid-ask spread. So we took some of our non-op right away in March and fire sale. We probably what we considered 60 cents on the dollar, 65 cents on the dollar of what we would have gotten at $50 oil per se. Some of it was drilling, very core, core, great acreage, but we made the conscious decision to sell it thinking we're going to go back and buy royalties at say 25 cents or 50 cents on the dollar compared to what we'd pay at $50 oil. That didn't happen. All we ended up doing was paying the same price we would have paid at $50 oil. So we were able to start getting deals done, but the prices didn't come down that much. We have to be extremely careful on that because if, say, we had to liquidate an asset or buy something or say we had to sell, in the back of my mind, I am extremely conscious to and understand that the end buyer is not there. Those guys, The guys with the bigger private equity funding type, they are going to be more cost conscious than I am on what they're paying. So they have boards and they have price decks that need to be assigned off and approved. And with oil just going all over the place and, you know, going negative at one point, you had to consistently rework the valuation model and then get it reapproved. And so a lot of the guys were handcuffed and you could do little tiny deals, but anything of scale, which is what you're looking to do ultimately with institutional capital was on hold. Now, the Antero deal was a scale. That was kind of the first one. You saw Pegasus bought something from Blackstone, the Permian. I think it was $100 million or so. Deals are starting to come back. Um, and so I think you're going to start to see some of those players get active again and start putting money to work. Now, I find it really interesting. You had talked about, yeah, we decided to fire sell some stuff because we thought reinvesting that money in minerals would be a better net value buy, right? And so I tend to agree with that in principle. And I had spoken with a handful of shops in March, April that were tinier, that used their own capital, and they were in a similar boat to you and and were considering that. And it's interesting that that didn't play out. Why hasn't the price adjusted? Do you think it's just a lag? Because mineral owners, they don't get the checks until two or three months later, and they might be slow to, to react. The other thing that's interesting is that pricing hasn't really adjusted because a lot of minerals uh, sales in the past, call it three to five years, have been predicated on development activity and it's been a frothy environment. And even though oil's back up to 40-ish, you you have sellers still wanting to get paid on undeveloped and buyers can't underwrite that because there's still too much uncertainty. And so even though oil's going up a bit, Unless you're buying straight PDP, the underwriting process isn't any easier for you. If you had to underwrite and say our friends in larger shops, if you have to underwrite single well economics generating an MPV 30 on a new drill at an $8 million well here in the Williston and 700 MBOUR, you're probably not going to be getting many deals done. Like I said earlier, you're going to have to have some faith that development will come back. And that's how we've been successful at acquiring assets. But Single well economics today in the Williston are generally if these are seven to nine million. That is that takes a lot of oil to uh, pay that well off, and especially our operating costs. You know, and the things 
in the non-op world, people didn't used to analyze LOEs like they do today. And I think it's, and terminal declines for that matter. But those two things coming together, cost per you know, barrel operating, will probably slow development or at least create a, a much higher cost of capital environment. Listen, Preston, this has been fun. Uh, I've enjoyed the chat and, and your insights. And again, glad to hear you, you're keeping active and keep those deals going. And I hope that faith converts for you. And when things start to come into production down the road, you can monetize some of that or get your returns through cash flow. Uh, so I, I wish you the best of luck. I guess in closing, I'll give you the floor. If someone wants to do business with you or you want to do business with others, what's the message to the broader industry? when they think of Everest, right? What should they keep in mind? Well, we do our best to be easy on the transaction front. We tr as always, we try to be transparent in our process of where we're at. How do we come up with our offers? You know, that's something that we do work extremely hard to maintain that reputation. I mean, people, you know, we get phone calls a lot and I could sit here in my truck and tell you what I'm gonna pay for that acre. We don't have this long drawn out type process that we need to run. Generally with minerals, it is often people's last asset that they want to sell, but it is the quickest transaction that can take place. So you have to weigh both of those back and forth as you other parties can consider selling. But that's something we, we do our best at to try to be easy on the transaction and give a, as much value towards it as we possibly can. Ideally, we'd be buying everything with single well, single well spacing units at PV10, that $40 oil, but I haven't found many of those deals yet. So we'll have to be a little bit more optimistic and a little bit of a believer that things will turn around. And one thing too, I, I forgot to ask. So going back to post COVID, you guys have been getting deals done. Have those been direct on the ground or have they been corporate? Because I'm curious to see the appetite for corporates to divest minerals and overrides right now, given everything that's going on. One argument is they had a lot of companies have balance sheet issues to deal with and smaller yep. override or royalty divestors just, it's not being met on the priority list yet. What are your thoughts on that? It's going to be slow. We're going to see a real burn here coming up. I mean, the PPP loans are, are coming off. We're going to see some companies have those, some don't. A lot of the smaller sector companies ended up did take those. We did not. But we suspect that the deal flow will increase. And we are kind of a little bit waiting for that to increase. Or, But on post-COVID, it, it's a dangerous scenario. I think that the volatility in, in the industry is going to be exceptionally high and something we're extremely conscious of. We will not downplay the impacts of the COVID result. And I, I think one thing that has happened, and this is you're just seeing a lot, of, a lot of people that have not been able to survive or they're not staying on the payroll through this. Subsequently, we've actually hired a couple guys. They were laid off and, and we picked them up. So we're, we're pretty bullish on the Williston Basin. It's long-term horizon. And I continue as our company to stay very data-focused, we want to keep our head down and our eyes open for more opportunities. But I think one of your other podcasts, you talked about operations or royalties, and we're looking to be involved in either operations and royalties. But as far as non-operating stuff, you know, we're pretty quickly trying to divest all of it. But we really like undeveloped lease plays is still a, a big focus. So. Well, listen, it's good. You're a bit contrarian in that regard, and, and it's great because you're a player in the market, and it, it's going to be great to have you guys on the Rolodex for many. You, I think you'll be very complimentary to a lot of strategies. So, Preston, thanks again for taking the time to do this. I really enjoyed the chat, and uh, I look forward to keeping in touch and, and meeting you in person soon. 
Well, Tim, we appreciate it. And uh, if there's anything else that we can do, you know, feel free to give us a call anytime. We're very open, transparent. We, you know, give a lot of our data away. So if somebody wanted an EUR bubble map, all we ask is to donate $50 towards a scholarship fund. And, you know, we send out most of the data that we put together. So. Fantastic. And, um, you know, by all means, what is a scholarship fund? We always like to give plugs to that. Anything that's for a good cause. One of our other episodes uh, I just did on our Women's Energy Council podcast, Whitney Wicks, who is a COO of Rocking WW, they just did Razor for the Helping Hand in the Rockies. And so all this is great, right? And thank you for your team and for the other corporates out there who are trying to support the community. We plan to be in this community for an awful long time. So we, you know, we aren't shy of trying to, you know, trying to support what we can. We've been very fortunate on our end to receive a lot of support from a lot of veterans. It's one of my favorite things about the oil and gas industry is although we are all competitors, a lot of us are very good friends and, you know, got to know a lot of great people in the industry. So something we, we really appreciate and want to give back whenever we can. All right, Preston, have a great weekend. Enjoy the fourth and we'll be in touch. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Oil and Gas Council represents the largest network of senior oil and gas executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate introductions on behalf of our royalties clients to help them place capital, buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how we can help your team by connecting you with executives like Preston, then please email me at tim.powell at oilcouncil.com or visit our website at www.oilcouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share these episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks, and see you next time.